Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, unfortunately, this morning, somehow or another, Stephen Ryan has managed not to put our, um, our theme music to air. I don't know what I've done wrong, but anyhow, we're just going to move straight along uh, because that's the way it is sometimes. Um, I'm Stephen Ryan uh, from Dixonia Rare Plants at Mount Macedon in Victoria, and like everybody else, the nursery's closed down at the moment. Um, and in the studio this morning, uh, we have one other person this morning, because life has got a little bit complicated this week, and I'd like to welcome Craig Wilson from Gentiana Nurseries. Good morning, Craig. Good How morning, Stephen. Good morning, listeners. Oh, dearie me. Uh, what a morning it has been, one way or the other. A bit of a foggy drive for me this morning. Was it? It was just sort of limping from one you know, star in the middle of the road to the next. Oh, goodness me. Uh, I have to say it was quite a nice fine trip down from Mount Macedon, so I didn't have a problem there, although there was a bit of rain. I came right. through a few rain patches on the way down, but no fog. And uh, we were meant to have Greg Balderston in this morning, so there was going to be th- the us three guys. And unfortunately, Greg's dog passed away this morning, and he's not feeling up to coming down. So it's just... Craig and I this morning, and at this stage we haven't even got anybody on the panel, so uh, or on the outside uh, line. So I'm not even sure we're even going to be able to take in calls this morning. So hopefully, whomever's supposed to be coming in will be here shortly, and all will be well. In the meantime, Craig and I are going to try and fill one and uh, one hour and fifteen minutes worth of airtime, uh, chatting amongst ourselves, it would seem, and. Uh, uh, in fact, Craig, I might get you to give uh, Karina a little bit of a ring and see if she can sort out the problems we now seem to be finding ourselves in. Um, and in the meantime, uh, we're going to talk about some plants, I think, is what we're going to do. Because that's what we're here for. Yeah, well, I <laughs> guess it is. Um, uh, I think this is the gardening program, after all. Um, if I give you that, yeah. can you just... What, what do you want me to ask about? Uh, if she can get in here, oh, you'll need to turn it on. Um, yes, because we've got nobody on the outside panel, and that's pretty important, particularly seeing as there's just you and I. So, whilst you're trying to ring uh, one of the office people here, I will start talking about a few plants. She's now, on the line, so... Uh, she must be trying to get through I to us. Send her a text. Yes, I think that's a good idea. This, this is all the nuts and bolts, folks, going on here at 3CR Community Radio. But let's start off with a couple of announcements, perhaps, whilst we're trying to get ourselves sorted. Um, some of you will be aware that my own garden at Macedon is potentially open next weekend for Open Gardens Victoria. It's called Tagurium. Uh, it's in Centenary Avenue, Macedon. The opening is meant to be the 24th and 25th of July, so that's next weekend. So assuming that the lockdown does end this week, the garden will be open, and we've been working really, really hard to try and uh, get it up and running for uh, yet another opening. And a winter opening is an interesting concept because most people seem to want to open their gardens when they're looking at their absolute peak, so they're really uh, waiting for the roses to bloom or the perennial border to be at its best or the autumn leaves to be at their best. So to open your garden in the middle of winter um, is something of a challenge for some people. Uh, I, on the other hand, believe my garden should look good all year round. So why, in fact, would you not, um, uh, in fact, uh, 
have a winter opening because if I can enjoy my garden, then why, in fact, not have other people enjoy it? I love my winter garden. Yeah. Well, I think this is one of the things about winter. It's, uh, it's one of those slightly quieter times. You can actually spend time wandering around enjoying your plants. A lot of people use it as a time to assess their garden's bones, which is fair enough. I like to think mine hasn't got too many bones at this time of the year. I mean, I've got bare trees. Mine's riddled with them. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. Is it? Uh, Yeah, look, I try and make sure that I've got interesting textures, foliages, forms, foliage colours and things that will hold the garden up all year for me. And I selected July as an opening time for the very good reason that it's probably the most downtime in my garden. So I wanted, you know, there's a few early bulbs and things in flowers and galanthus and aranthus and uh, uh, leucogems and what have you are in flower. Um, And the hellebores are just coming out, so there'll be hellebores out for this coming weekend. Magnolia? No, nothing like that in our area okay. yet. Um, that's far too early for our magnolias. I mean, you're warm up there yeah, in the that's right. compared yeah, to us. Absolutely. Um, so the only blossoming tree that's actually showing any sense of uh, doing anything uh, is Prunus subhertella autumnalis. Which, no, witch hazel? Uh, the witch hazel is not growing in the garden at home. Right. I find it's a bit too drought um, intolerant for yeah. our garden in Macedon. I can grow it well up in the nursery garden. Yeah. But down where I am, I've tried a couple of witch hazels and they've faded out. Um, So, yeah, so I haven't got those in flower either. But I think the garden is holding together reasonably well um, with all of the textures and forms. And um, it is sort of one of those things I did want to mention this morning, and we might go on to that in a moment. Um, And that is that coloured foliages come into their own at this time of the year. They certainly do. So I have... Quite a number of variegated plants in the garden home, which for a fair part of the year, they're sort of part of the scenario, but they're not really all that important. Mm. Uh, so um, uh, might come winter, though, when trees drop their leaves and, and there's not that many flowers about, then suddenly those particular plants really do come into their own. Um, and so I've brought in a selection of variegated things we might talk about as we go along. How, how are you with variegates? I absolutely adore them, Yeah. Uh, particularly in the shade garden. Yep, yeah, they, they bring they light They really in. light it up, yeah. that's right. Yes, yeah. I think people who have an aversion to variegated plants probably need some therapy. It's, it's, it's a big thing to say, I don't like variegation. Yeah. I mean, there's so many of them yeah. that in amongst there would be some that appeal. Well, I do find that even those most stridently against variegations will generally have... Space in their garden for a variegated hoster or a variegated grass. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and so those plants tend to sneak through anyway. Yeah. I just think that, um, you know, we should be using the whole palette of plants where we can. Absolutely. And so if we've yeah. got the opportunity to, um, to uh, use variegated plants and use them well, um, then why not? Because they will give us something to hang our hats on at the worst times yeah. of the year. Look, the one thing I never say is I don't like this particular genus. I think that's a very risky thing to say because people tend to uh, put their um, uh, opinions on one or two species in a genus. And as soon as they do that, uh, then you've got the issue that um, uh, they assume all of the other plants within the genus have the same characteristics. Yeah, which is is a mistake. Oh, it is. It's dreadful. Unless you're an expert in that genus, there's no way you can say you don't like 
any group of players. And there's always one that's going to appeal to you. Oh, of course there is. Yeah. Of course there is. Yeah. I mean, I've got quite a number of people getting onto an old hobby horse of mine that have become quite obsessed by Oxalis suddenly. Yeah, uh, that's good. You know, so, uh, you know, if you show somebody Oxalis parmafrons, for instance, sake, which has the most amazing sort of rosette of leaves on it. It's extraordinary. It yeah. is. It's a remarkable plant. Yeah. And I declare that there isn't a person out there, as long as you don't mention the name, who wouldn't immediately fall in love with that plant. That's right. Or, or, or Oxalis masoniana and full flower. Of course. You know, yeah. In fact, I remember years ago when I was <laughs> a, a struggling nurseryman trying to convince people to buy Oxalis, which mm. seems like a silly thing to do, I had a lady come into my nursery one day and I had Oxalis masoniana in all its orange glory in flower. Mm. And for some reason or another, it's label had disappeared and this woman this woman I should say found this plant fell immediately in love with it uh, and um, then promptly sort of grabbed it to her chest and said oh you know this is stunning I have to have it uh, how much is it and what is it and I think at the time I was selling tubes for about $5.50 or something mm-hmm. and um uh, I said, oh, it's Oxalis Masoniana. Well, I might as well have been offering her bubonic play. Yes, that's right. <laughs> she couldn't put this thing down fast enough. And so then I spent the next 20 minutes telling her about this genus of some 530-odd species, worldwide distribution, some of which are really hard to grow, particularly those from the high Andes, um, and, you know, and that we have some native species there. It's a cosmopolitan genus. I went through the whole thing trying to encourage her to buy this oxalis, which you and I both know has no real pretensions to taking over the garden. Uh, yeah, quite the reverse, I would have thought. Yeah, well, I would like it to multiply a little faster. Yes. So, so um, anyhow, so um, I spent that whole time chatting to her and... Um, uh, at the end of 20-odd minutes, she still put the oxalis down on the bench and walked away without, in fact, buying it. So I managed to spend 25 minutes, um, in fact, convincing somebody or thinking I was convincing somebody to spend $5.50. Okay. And, in fact, what happened was she didn't buy the thing in the end. So... I learned a valuable lesson there. But it's interesting how some groups of plants are, in fact, um, coming back into their own. Others are fading out. I mean, plants are fashions. Yeah, and and, and there is nobody who would reject maples on the grounds of sycamore. Well, exactly. I mean, that's actually a perfect example. I hadn't even thought about that. If you live in the Dandenongs or at Mount Macedon, um, Aces Hudoplatinus, the sycamore, uh, is one of our worst weedy tree species. Yep. It is just phenomenal. It self-seeds itself everywhere. I'm trying to convince people around Mount Macedon to discard, chop down, poison, get rid of as many sycamores as we can. We'll never get rid of them exactly because there's one or two huge gardens on Mount Macedon where there's actually avenues of them and to take down an avenue of 100-year-old trees could be... I'd do it in a flash. (laughs) Well, some people would. (laughs) But unfortunately, it would be pretty difficult to encourage people to do that. So I think we're always going to have them. And, of course, the powers that be don't necessarily control their sycamores in the native forest either. That's right, they don't. So, you know, so they're going to come back into everybody's gardens anyway unless the the government gets on top of them. But you're right, Craig, a a group of plants like sycamore um, or a group of plants like maples with one species that's got a really bad reputation, we still plant Japanese maples. There are, in, in the Acer genus, quite a number of weeds. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, so we have to take our um, 
a broader concept of what plants are about Um, and yes we need to be firm about weedy species within any genus but that doesn't mean that we can't be growing others. So anyhow getting back to another announcement we should make and by the way we do have somebody who's come in to open up the lines for us, thank goodness I can't imagine talking well actually I can imagine talking for an hour and a quarter non-stop. I think I'd lose my voice. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but anyhow, I mentioned our garden opening, so if people are interested in coming along, um, assuming that we will be able to open next weekend, uh, entry fee is $10, students $6, under 18 free, uh, but please, where possible, try and book tickets through Try Booking, uh, and uh, you can get in there via the Open Gardens Victoria website, I'm sure, um, and we'd love to see as many people as possible, and we will have a plant stall selling some of the plants that are doing their thing in the garden, and we'll also have um, my partner Craig's Botanic Art will be all set up, so we'll have a, an art gallery with Botanic Art on display and also for sale. So there should be enough to keep people entertained. Hopefully, my, uh, you know, if I'm going to be able to open, then the nursery will also be open, so people can go up the mountain to the nursery and go in and have a look around and uh, enjoy that as well. And buy and things they've seen in the garden. Exactly. So that's the plan. So that's next weekend, the 24th and 25th of July from 10 till 4.30. So let's keep our fingers crossed that we get on top of this corona outbreak and that the five days lockdown is, in fact, what we end up with. And then I'll hopefully see you all up at Macedon the following weekend. That's a bit of a major undertaking, Stephen. Uh, and I don't know what it is. My last opening was cancelled because COVID set in. Yeah. <laughs> this one's uh, on the edge because of an outbreak. Uh, I think I'm um, jinxed a bit, but anyhow, it can't be helped. Now, That's the time of the year we're in, isn't it? Well, it is. I mean, we've just got to learn to bounce back with all these things. And if it yeah. happens, it happens. If it doesn't, it doesn't. Uh, in the meantime, I'm madly getting the garden looking as spick and span as one can possibly do for this time of the year. Um, Craig, we might start with um, letting people know that uh, they will be able to ring in in a minute, but we haven't got our panel up and running quite yet, but we're getting there. Um, but remember to give us a ring in. You can send us a text on 0488 809 855. That's 0488 809 855. And if you want to ring us, um, you could ring us on 941 So that's the ring in number, 941 And um, just in passing, although it's a fair ways off and things can happen in the meantime. The only other announcement I've got this morning is for something to lock into your diaries for the 23rd and 24th of October. And I know that seems like an awfully long way away, but when you think about it, we're well into July, so it's not. No, it's not. You know, spring is just around the corner. There's evidence of it all over the garden. Yep, yep, there is. There's, you know, all the bulbs are erupting, everything's sort of heading towards spring. Um, And that particular weekend uh, is the Yarra Valley Spring Plant Fair uh, up at Wandon, uh, run by by the uh, indomitable Larkman family. So um, pop that in your diary. There'll be a whole range of stall holders with plants of all sorts there available for sale. Uh, there will be entertainment of different types, speakers, etc. Uh, there will be food available, uh, local wines and beers available. Uh, so it should be a great weekend for all. So lock it into your, into your diary now. And all things being equal, it will be a goer. Uh, the autumn one was fabulous fun. I was up there for that one as MC. And so I'm 
sure that the spring one will be equally as good. There'll be a whole new range of plants, no doubt. Well, of course there will. There'll be lots of different things that you wouldn't have seen in the autumn one that you're now going to see in the spring yep. one. And I'm assuming that things like bulbs and other sundry things will be part of the mix for that particular season. All right, um, that's all the announcements I've got. Why don't we talk about some plants? We've got... Um, uh, oh, hold on. We've got somebody online already. We might see if we can bring them in. Um, uh, oops. No, not there yet. All right. I will put that off and we'll try again yeah. later. Craig, we might as well start talking about a few plants. Yeah, look, I bought a begonia in, which is, seems a bit odd for this time of the year, given that most of them don't have any leaves. Yeah, but not but, odd for you. Yeah, <laughs> this one is begonia bowerae, and, and while the rest of the polytunnel is full of collapsing begonias, this one's looking like it's 35 degrees and 90% humidity. It does look very tropical. Covered in foliage, yeah. not not any sign of um, deterioration due to the cold weather. So this one's obviously going to be fairly cold tolerant. By the it's of looking like, well, the last year was the same. So this is my second season with it. And yes, it's, it's very cold tolerant. Yeah. It's, it's not uncommon. It's one that's sold as a terrarium plant. But oh, yeah. my parent plant would fill the terrarium. So, so it would obviously get to a reasonable size. It does get to a reasonable size. It's, it's a rhizoma spagonia with... Mid-green leaves with sort of dark, dark veining and a hairy um, margin. Flowers in spring, very easy. Yeah. And it doesn't seem to have downtime, which is extraordinary. I mean, we are right at the edge of Begonia Territory in Alinda. Yeah, well, exactly. Yeah. So do you think I might even grow that at Macedon? There you go. <laughs> oh, right. All right. Thank you for give that. Give it I'll, a bash. I'll give it a go. Yeah. It is very pretty. Yeah. Um, Yes, it's sort of almost like a stained glass window. It's It's got really interesting patination in the foliage. That's right. Uh, and it's a good flower. Yeah? Yeah. Colour? Mm, soft pink. Ah, right. Yeah. 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 A fairly classical colour. Fairly classical colour. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but lots of them. Yeah. Oh, yeah. that's fantastic. All right. So it only grows into a little clumpy sort of plant? Mine would be mm, 25 centimetres high with yeah. a similar sort of spread. Yeah, but oh, it's that's not, a, not an old plant yet. Yeah, so, yes, it might grow into something even larger. I suspect time. it probably will. Yeah. yeah and, and it would flower at probably 40 centimetres. Oh, goodness. Yeah, big, oh. long flower spikes. Oh, well, that's lovely. So have you got that plant actually available yet? Yeah, I have a few in the nursery. Oh, yep. fantastic. Yep. All right, so once you're allowed to open again, that's um, right. people should beat a path to your door to have a look at that. And the name yep. again was Begonia? Bowery. Bowery. So B O W. E A E. Ah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Something like that, yes. <laughs> Some yeah. of those uh, botanical names can be quite hard to find. They can be. But, yeah, it's an amazing genus, the begonias. They keep discovering new ones it's every a big five one. minutes. Yeah. yeah, it's a big one. And, and, you know, they vary enormously mm. in their performance. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, just in their look, too. Yeah, that's uh, right. I mean, at both extremes, I remember seeing a tiny begonia growing on the sides of rocks in the moss in streams in Madagascar yeah. that would have only been two centimetres tall, yeah. seemed to produce two or maybe three tiny leaves and a little cluster of white flowers on the top. Now, there's a terrarium one. Yeah, now, that would be a good <laughs> one for terrariums. Um, minute little thing, and it was quite obviously a begonia. And at the other extreme, I can remember when I went walking in uh, on the Inca Trail in Peru, we got up into this quite damp sort of forest, but, you know, obviously below uh, tree line, so it was... 
uh, well sheltered and there was a begonia growing there that would have easily been three to four metres tall mm. um, with huge heads of tiny white flowers on it that somebody, one of the guides had been told by an English um, trekker that it was an elderflower. Right. That's, and I guess I could see where they were coming from because yeah. there was these big heads of tiny white flowers. Yeah. I mean, the foliage was nothing like an elderflower, um, but it was this huge big bush. Right. Enormous. In subalpine scrub. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it was growing in the same area as Bamerias um, and uh, all sorts of um, Ericaceas things, yeah. the Cavendishias and all that sort of uh-huh. stuff. Um, and it was, yeah, this huge big bush. Extraordinary. So, yes, I never did find out which one it was, but yeah. anyhow, I'm sure if I did enough Googling, I might find it. But uh, I haven't got it, so it doesn't really sort of matter in a sense. But yeah. it was great to see the plant. And would it, would it have been in a zone that gets frost? I would have said it was in a zone that got quite cool, but I doubt that it would have got frosted because it was actually under canopies. Okay. So it was yeah. growing under small trees. Yeah. Um, and uh, a lot of the other stuff around, although it, some of it had quite hard, sort of reasonably frost-tolerant looking foliage, there was plenty of soft stuff mm. there. Yeah. Uh, so my gut feeling is that it probably didn't get no a lot of frost. frost. Yeah. yeah. So it might be an interesting one to try and grow for us. But anyhow, what can yeah. I say? All right, so begonias. Yeah, and and if you're growing begonias, this is the time of year to dry them out. Yeah. Yeah, extraordinarily dry. All right, well, we might try and have another go at bringing in this call. No, it's not there. I don't know what's quite going on there, but anyhow, we'll leave it for the moment. Things will hopefully sort themselves out. Yeah. Uh, Do you want to have another crack at something else? Yeah, look, Hygo Camellia. Ah, which is a, it's another group um, that obviously comes from Japan and not really, they haven't really caught on in Australia. Yeah, everybody's planting sasanquas or japonicas and everybody knows about reticulatas even yeah. if they're not growing them necessarily. That's right. Uh, but you're right, the hygos are, are virtually unheard of. And, and a big group, mm. the Japanese grow a lot of them and it, it's, it's the principal species used for bonsai in Japan. Yeah. I don't know why. I'd have to start working on them to understand why they've chosen them. Mm-hmm. It's certainly not flower size. Yeah, because the flowers aren't tiny, so no, they're, they're not, not going to be in proportion to yeah. the size of the tree if you bonsai it. But what the Japanese do is they get old japonica trunks and then graft hygo branching all over them. Oh, really? Yeah. Goodness me. And the petals are quite sort of short and stumpy. Mm-hmm. And then they have this enormous boss of um, stamens, yellow stamens in the middle. And... It's one of those camellias which can get stripes through it. Oh, yeah, so it can sort of sport out into different things. That's right, or have different coloured plants on mm. the same, different coloured flowers on the same plant, a bit similar to Satsuki azalea. I was going to say exactly that, though. Yeah. Satsukis do much the same thing, so they're, they're quite unstable in their colours. That's right, and, and some of them would be considered to be horrendous, I think, <laughs> <laughs> and others quite beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I so quite like this one. This is Yamato Nishiki. With the Hygos, though, have you found there's any sort of difference in their sort of hardiness to some of the other camellias or, you know, any anything we should there's, know about? There's nothing about them that says to me that they're difficult. Mm. Yeah. Perhaps it's a bit slow, but then camellias, as a rule, generally are. Yeah. And yeah. if they're fast growing, well, my inclination would be to reject them. Yeah, yeah, because they often grow very lax and That's right. yeah. wafty, don't they, if they yeah. grow really fast. And uh, so it would make a good bonsai, obviously, but it would also make a good tub specimen. Yep. Um, or a garden plant. Yeah. And, and, you know, given time, they'll still grow into a reasonable-sized plant. Pretty much like a japonica. Yeah. And, and 
every large town in Japan has a Haigo club. Good. So they really are popular. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's, just, it's odd that they haven't really taken off here. No, there's only half a dozen of them here available, really. Uh, yeah. So you could hold the national collection without having many. <laughs> <laughs> We'd want to have a few more, I think. Yeah, yes, yes, that might be a good idea. Yeah. Um, all right, so um, what we might do now, because we're still waiting for calls to come in, I might just read the numbers again. So if anybody wants to ring us up, it's 9419 0155, that's 94190155, and do please ring in and have a chat to us this morning. It will keep Craig and I busy, um, and we'll know that there's somebody out there listening, which would be good. And if you wanted to text us, you can text us on 0488809855. So that's 0488809855. I'll tell you what is looking beautiful in the garden at the moment is my bantams. Yeah. They have their fresh covering of feathers. Oh, right. And the hens, their combs are starting to colour up and extend. Yeah. yeah and the so co- they're getting ready for spring. They're getting ready. <laughs> well, they'll be laying very soon. Yeah. And the cockerels have, you know, beautiful fresh tail yeah. feathers. They're, yeah. Very smart. Yes. Yeah, so and I don't understand why more people don't keep them poultry. Um, I can see the big ones yeah. being an issue because they're like an earth-moving machine. Right? Oh, yes, if you let the chooks out and they get into the vegetable garden, yeah. you, you can have a nightmare. But, but, anyhow. but my little leghorns, you know, the leghorn bantams, they're very light. Mm. They don't wander very far and they don't scratch a lot. Yeah. They're good. I don't let them out for a long time. Yeah. I let them out about half past three, four o'clock. Oh, right, just for, a, just uh, for an hour or two. Yeah. To puddle around and then really very little damage. The only thing I do is just protect plants that have just been put in. Yeah, because they're nice few sticks. Mm. Yeah, yeah. But no, that's a that's a good thought, and uh, and they're pretty little things, and they give a bit of life to the garden. Oh, and the leghorn bantams lay. Yeah, they lay from midwinter right through until mid autumn. Oh, fantastic! Without stopping. And yeah. I'm assuming the eggs are slightly smaller, but you just yeah, they're Add slightly smaller, one. but they're not, not as tiny as a true bantam egg yeah. because, you know, they're reduced from a standard size. <laughs> yes. Oh, dear. So yeah. the girls must have a little bit more of a problem laying eggs then, <laughs> potentially. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I don't understand the issue with roosters either. I don't get why in the last 50 years they've suddenly become unpopular. When yeah. they are so linked to humanity. Yeah, and the, the sound of a rooster is not actually all that awful, I have to say. It's quite well, pleasant in the background when you hear it in the mornings. It and takes things. a short time to get used to them. Yeah, and, and once you are, you don't even notice. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, it's like anything in life. I mean, when I was a tiny child, we were living in Melbourne, uh, and we moved to Macedon when I was about five, but we were living on a busy road, mm-hmm. and virtually behind us was one of the major uh, rail lines, yep. uh, with trains going through all day long and all night long. Yep. Um, I don't remember it ever bothering us. In fact, when we first moved to Mount Macedon, it was so deadly silent uh, that it took us a while to adjust to that. That's right. <laughs> and, I mean, my house in Footscray was close to the railway line, and, and at night when the, the, the um, freight trains were going through to Sydney, the whole house would shake. Yeah. But never woke me up after a while. <laughs> yeah, see, there you go. Yeah. Um, all right. Now, before I forget, um, Open Gardens Victoria... Uh, have offered two free tickets to my garden opening for next weekend, assuming that it goes ahead, of course. Um, So if somebody wants to ring in uh, with their details, uh, uh, 
then please do ring in uh, the station now and your details can be taken and you will gain two tickets to come to my garden next weekend and let's hope somebody will be able to use them. Um, so ring in now, first in, best dressed, two free tickets, what mm-hmm. more could you want? That's right. So there yeah. you go and then I'll hopefully see you on that weekend and know that somebody has been listening. All right. Bantams we talked about. Ah, my major topic for the week, whilst we're waiting for some calls to come through, um, is in fact um, the variegated plants, which is what we sort of touched on slightly a few minutes ago. And um, I bought in a selection of variegated plants. By the way, if people want to see the things I've bought in, I did send Liz uh, images last night, and so they should be up on the 3CR um, Facebook page. Uh, with images of all of the different plants I bought in. Yeah, I, I didn't do that. Um, I, it's not that I didn't forget, but I had very short notice yeah. and thundering rain. Yeah, well, <laughs> I was given somewhat short notice as well about the fact that I might need plants because uh, we had quite a horrendous time. And Virginia, if you're out there listening, and I'm sure you are, Relax now. We're here. We're doing it. It's man. We're managing. I think. Uh, poor Virginia. Yesterday uh, had one, at least two people drop out. That's right. Um, and then uh, I had a phone call this morning from Greg to say he couldn't make it. So all of her hard work was almost for nil. Uh, but anyhow, these things happen, and we're here, and we're doing our job. Um, but anyhow, I brought along some variegated plants, and I thought we might like to look at a few of them. And one that a group of plants that's got a bit of a love-hate relationship with gardeners and others are the hollies. Well, I think the variegated hollies are terrific. Yeah, well, I think they're great plants. I mean, they're yeah. tough, they're hardy, they're very prunable. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can tub them up, you can use them in the shade, they grow in the sun. Uh, there doesn't seem to be too many places where hollies won't grow. And they don't self-seed. No, they don't seem to self-seed around, so mm. I've not had a lot of problems with the variegated ones. I mean, mm-hmm. the green ones, well, yes. We yeah, well, they're away. They're yeah, that's right. right. Exactly. But I bought two along this morning. One is um, a hybrid holly called Golden King, Mm -hmm. which is a bit silly because it is a girl. And it's Uh, a big one. And it's a big, strong growing holly and, in fact, quite quick growing. So, you Mm. know, a lot of people think of holly as being quite slow. Uh, But Golden King is quite a strong, vigorous holly. And I actually use it as an understock for grafting weeping hollies onto because I can get it up tall reasonably fast. And it has a gold edge around the leaf. It's almost thornless. Um, it wouldn't have a leaf which, which would make you think it was a holly at first glance. It's almost like a Sasanqua camellia-shaped yeah, leaf yeah. or something like that. It's a, it's a weird uh, plant and not typical of the group. But its red berries against its golden and uh, green foliage is lovely. And it would be it would grow quite nicely in the shade, wouldn't oh, it? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Any of them seem to. Yeah. And the other one I bought along is an extremely prickly, curly-leafed one uh, called Silver Milkmaid, mm-hmm. uh, which is a much slower-growing beast, uh, has more classical holly-like leaves, and the centre of the leaf, or in fact most of the leaf, is actually a pale creamy lemon colour, with um, an irregular green edge around the leaf. Yeah. And uh, so it's quite an interesting plant. So what's the scale of that one? Look, I've got one in the garden at home. It's been in about three or four years. It's only probably, and it was... It was probably only 30 centimetres when I put it in. Mm-hmm. It's probably not much more than a metre and a half now. Okay, so it's very slow. Very slow growing. It'll eventually make a, a decent-sized plant. There's a couple of ancient old silver milk maids in some of the gardens on Mount Macedon because, of course, hollies mm. were very popular in Victorian times. Yeah. And so there's lots of cultivars growing around our gardens on Mount Macedon that are 80 or 100 years old mm. or more. 
And so there's large old silver milkmaids, which are probably five metres, something like that. So it does get reasonably substantial. But it takes a long time. A long time, yeah. yeah. It's 100 years. Yeah. The other one that uh, you see occasionally around Mount Macedon is the silver variegated hedgehog holly, Mm -hmm. um, which has prickles on the top of the leaf as well as around the sides, which makes it quite a bizarre thing. Sounds a bit vicious. Look, it's not as vicious as it sounds because the spines on top of the leaves don't seem to be prickly. They're just sort of there. Um, And there's one in one of our old gardens on the mount that must be six metres by six metres. It'd be spectacular. It's growing out in the middle of a lawn. Mm. Uh, it is actually a male holly, so if people are even vaguely nervous about berries and potential self-seeding, mm. buy a silver variegated hedgehog holly. Yeah. They don't seed at all because it's a male form. I have a couple of the blue ones in my garden oh, as yes, well. Yes, the blue hollies, which seems to be a bit of a misnomer. I don't see them as particularly blue. but At certain times of the year, they get a slight sheen to yeah. them, but blue is not what I'd call no. them. But they're still very nice plants. Yeah, and they're reasonably vigorous growers. Yeah. Yep, yep, they seem to do well, and then at this time of the year, covered in berries. Yeah. And the foliage is definitely a darker colour than, than your standard holly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so, uh, and they were bred, I believe, the what they call the blue hollies in North America, because believe it or not, in some of the colder parts of North America, even the normal English holly is not cold hardy enough to use for hedging. Yeah. And so they bred this particular holly for extreme cold conditions. Okay, so Blue Angels really takes the cold. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah. I've seen it in uh, in Canada and places like that okay. doing surprisingly well. Yeah. So, uh, but yes, the classical English holly doesn't do as well. All right, now, you might like to talk about something. I'm going to have a quick look and see if there's anything on our um, text messages that's come in that we need to deal with. So, yeah. You give us a chat yep. about something. I bought in a few galanthus because you know it's, it's snowdrop season at the moment, and um, there are a, a vast array of galanthus. Some of them sort of come down to the number of green dots on their leaves or petals. Sorry, some of them are very different. Uh, the one I'm holding in my hand at the moment is one of the yellow group. Ah, yes. Um, this is probably the most common one which is Spindlestone Surprise. Yeah. 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 When, when we say yellow, of course, what we're saying is that the greeny bits on a normal galanthus tend to be more yellow than green. It's not a fully yellow It's flower. not a yellow flower. The, no. the, the bits which are ordinarily green are a sort of soft shade of yellow. Yeah. Um, but it is completely different in look. Yeah. Yeah, to it does the other give one. a different look, doesn't and it? And the green in the galanthus is really what defines them, isn't mm. it? It is, As yeah. a snowdrop, yeah. yeah. Um, most of them are pretty slow to increase. My feeling about growing them in Melbourne is that they are worth trying if you put them in deep, yeah, in deciduous shade. Ah, yes, yeah, so that you get the bulbs down to a reasonable depth. Get the bulbs get, down yeah. to a depth where the soil temperature is not going to be so variable. Yeah. yeah. How do you feel about when you're growing galanthus, whether some of the Mediterranean species might actually be better bets for Melbourne gardeners than the likes of Novalis and some of the cooler climate ones. I think that's probably right. Yeah. I mean, the, I think probably the easiest one would be Alwesii. Yeah. Yeah, and I'd get the bulbs down 15 centimetres, yeah. really Which seems, down. It seems like a long way down because the bulbs are not extremely They'll big. push through. Yeah. They'll yeah. push through, yeah. yeah. So you would say people should have a crack? I I would. Yeah. Yeah, I would. Well, it's always nice to push the barriers anyway. Absolutely. Grow something that, you know, people say you shouldn't be able to. I mean, half of my garden's full of frost tender things. Yeah. And, uh, 
I'm doing a bit of a, a thing in black at the moment because we've had quite a few <laughs> decent frosts. Yeah. But, you know, it's what it is. Look, I mean, I, I don't have a great deal of success with them in pots. I mm. find that they, they're better garden plants. But then I have a friend who lives in Greensboro who has an enormous pot of them yeah. that comes up every year. So it's, it's all about skill. Yeah. It, yeah, it is about skill, isn't it, to a large yeah, extent? That's right. Um, all right, now before we move on, there is one um, text that's, or there's a couple of texts that come in. One from somebody who said, We are listening, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which is good. Thank you very much. Uh, and one of our viewers, uh, or viewers, one of our listeners, uh, has a Canary Islands foxglove, the what was isoplexus and uh-huh. has now been dumped into digitalis, uh, and wants to know whether it will shift. My gut feeling is I wouldn't. Yeah, I wouldn't. I'd take some cuttings off it, yeah. which is not a big, not a big challenge. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so yeah, I would if it needs to be moved for whatever reason. I think I would. Yes, I would do either what Craig said, or I'd wait for it to flower and collect some seed too, yeah. because it's quite easy to germinate. From Depending, seed. of course, on the age of it. Yeah. If it hasn't been in the garden long, it would shift easily. I oh would yeah, thought. if it was still sort of almost yeah. in its original. But if it's pot, been so. there for more than twelve or eighteen months, mm-mm. no. No, it doesn't strike me as one of those plants that would move easily. No, it's not something I'd do, and I'm a perennial shifter. Yeah. I mean, sometimes I think I need to plant a trolley under my plants. <laughs> so they get ready to move again. <laughs> That's yeah. right. Um, so, yes, our, our consensus is not to try and move uh, an isoplexus or digitalis, um, but to start off some young ones to, to grow elsewhere. Of course, you can always buy another one Go as well. Go and see Stephen and yes. get another one. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. I've got some nice plants at the moment. Yeah. Um, so, and they do grow fast, so it's not long before you've got a, a good size plant again. That's right, yeah. So, so there you go. But if, if it's going to be terminal in the position it's in, then give it a bash. Yeah, well, that's the other thing. I mean, what have you got to lose? I yeah. mean, if you were trying to shift a large tree and you had to bring in machinery and stuff and there was a good chance you are going to lose it anyway, yeah. that's a huge investment. But, you know, sticking a spade under something and moving it from point A to point B is not necessarily that big a deal. That's it? right. Yeah. And because it's one of those plants that you can replace, then the risk is perhaps worth it. Yeah, I mean, I moved Arctostaphylus in the autumn. I really didn't think that it would survive, mm. but it's looking like it's going to jump away. Yeah, well, there you go. Yeah. Yes, that's so another just, plant I wouldn't normally try. That's right. Shift. Yeah. yeah, but it, it was in the wrong spot. I, you know, you, you think that these things are not going to get that big, and they do. <laughs> <laughs> Almost invariably. That's right. Yeah. Oh, dear. All right. Um, now... Because I was talking about variegates, we might as well continue on that theme just a little bit. Um, I brought along a plant that I'm actually getting more and more fond of. Um, Eleagnuses are almost indestructible. They are incredibly Mm -hmm. hardy shrubs. And they have thrown quite a number of variegated forms. Uh, They're sometimes called Russian olives, although they're not olives, but they do get little olive-like berries on them. Uh, They have tiny... inconspicuous flowers but a nice perfume mm-hmm. uh, and they make good hedges they make good trimmed balls they make good just background shrubs um, and they're indestructible oh yeah they'll grow in sun they'll grow in yeah. shade uh, I guess the only thing they really wouldn't appreciate is if they were in a bog um, no, I don't think they survive wet no wet feet is yeah. probably one thing I wouldn't put an Eleagnus through now this is a form of Eleagnus pungens, which is the commonest of the Eleagnuses, uh, but it's one I imported years ago from America. Uh, obviously a Japanese cultivar though, uh, Hosuba fukarin, and it has a nice clean white edge around the edge of the leaf and a comparatively narrow leaf for an Eleagnus. Yeah, it's very simple variegation. Yeah, it's just it's really pretty. I, I, and the 
older they get in the garden, the more I like this plant. Initially, when it arrived, I thought, oh, yet another variegated Eleagnus. Mm. I wasn't overly excited by it. Um, but, you know, uh, now that it's got a little bit established in the garden at home, uh, I mean, I can ignore it. I never water it. I never yeah. do anything to and it. It'd cope with the shade too, wouldn't it? It does. Uh, the, yeah. My actual original stock plant is in very heavy shade yeah. um, and coping really well and yet the plants I've got up at the nursery for sale are right out in full sun in, in 20 centimetre pots mm-hmm. uh, and looking absolutely fabulous yeah. uh, so it is one of those plants that we should re-look at and I think this particular cultivar is well worth considering it seems to be nice and stable, I've never had a piece revert, yep. which is something that can happen with some of the alliates. It can, or all variegates. Yeah. Yes, well any variegate can, yep. although it's surprising how some are much more stable than others yep. uh, and this seems to be quite a stable one so yeah, so Aliagnus pungens Hasaka fukarin. Um, pungens is also used for bonsai in Japan Yeah, yeah well, and beautiful bark this one actually could be quite a good bonsai plant because its leaves are already slightly That's smaller small, than yeah. normal. So it might be one that they particularly like for that sort of work. Who knows? Yeah. So anyhow. Um, uh, now, we've had somebody ring in. Somebody has actually got the tickets for my garden opening. Uh, and they've asked that if it can't open next weekend, will we be opening later in the year, please? <laughs> mm. uh, look, at some point or another we'll open, obviously, uh, but whether we'll delay our opening and, and have another crack at it in due course, I'm not sure. I haven't talked to the Open Gardens Victoria group about it yet. Yep. We're still living in hope. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so that's what we've got to try and do. Um, all right, now, another variegate that I'm quite fond of, although it's it's a little more challenging for some people because spotty variegation is not always popular. Depends how you use it. Yeah. Uh, this is one of the abutilins, or believe it or not, was one of the abutilins. Uh, it's now in a genus called Calianthi. Calianthi, is it? Uh, yes, apparently, if you believe the Q um, Plants of the World I'm Online sure site. sure they know what they're doing. Uh, well, if, if they don't, nobody does, I yes. guess. Um, but it's uh, a South American plant. They're commonly known as Chinese lanterns. Uh, this one is Calianthi megapotamicum variegatum, which is quite a mouthful. And um, its leaves are really weirdly spotted and blotched with yellow. And it gets yellow petaled flowers with a sort of dusty red calyx and almost black stamens sticking out underneath. So you get this sort of three-coloured mm-hmm. thing with it. It virtually flowers year-round. Yeah. The birds love it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the spinebills and New Holland honey eaters are forever browsing over it. Yeah. Uh, so it does give them a good winter food source. And it's sort of a lax shrub. It's one of those things that's difficult to sell. Yeah. Because it always looks so scruffy in a pot. Oh, God, yes. Uh, you've got to have a stock plant to show people what that's it can right. do. Yeah. Otherwise, you'd never sell it. Yeah. Uh, I've actually got one on the on a uh, wire fence at the front of the nursery, mm-hmm. which I've just been training it through. So I just keep poking it back through the wire fence. Yeah. And it's now up about two and a half metres on the fence. That's as tall as the fence is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's covering a panel of fence probably... Three metres wide. Okay, it's got quite big. It has got quite big. And so people regularly see it and want it. But you're right, when they see the plant in the pot, 
they go, oh, um, maybe not. Maybe not. Yes, because it's really hard to present as a nice plant. Well, it just doesn't. Yeah. And I've tried. I've tried feeding it. I've tried pruning them. I've tried all sorts of things, but no. No, no. You've just got to accept uh, that it can make a good plant and yeah. believe the nurserymen when they sell you one. Um, but I think it's a fabulous plant. Yeah. And I wouldn't be without it in the garden. Uh, it gives me interest all year round. Um, it's one of those sort of workhorses mm-hmm. of the garden. I have the prostrate plain green one in my garden, which is really good. Yeah. Particularly if you're prepared to put the clippers over it every now and again, keep it thick. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So think about them. I mean, abutilins as a genus, uh, uh, if they are still abutilins, any of them, uh, are a great group of plants because they flower practically nonstop. The birds love pretty well all of them. Yeah. And they're easy. Yeah. They pretty much come in the full range of colours too, don't they? Yeah, exactly. Well, except really seriously blue <laughs> no i mean there's the what are now corinna butylins that have that sort of lavender yeah the vitifolium type oh. which have that sort of lavendery more mm-hmm. outward facing flower they look more like a hibiscus yeah uh, but most of the abutilins come in shades from white through to red with yellow orange and pinks in between That's right. yeah. and so there's a huge range of color the red and, one is really prolific oh yeah yeah well yeah. i've got bouldenage in the garden at home the pure white one mm-hmm. and it's a fabulous plant yeah and it has black leaf stems, which sounds like nothing, but in fact, because it's got the dark leaf stems and the white flowers... Yeah, it would really show up. It does. It, the yeah. combination actually works really yeah. well. So yeah. I love that. I think it's a great plant. Uh, um, all right. So I've, uh, you talk about another plant while yeah. I check the um, what's going on on the SMS. Oh, I'm knocking my microphone around. On the SMS line. Another one of my favourites, as um, regular listeners would know, is cyclamen, and, and this time of year is persicum, which is the parent of all the hybrids. And collectors have sort of shunned persicum to a certain extent as a result of the commonness of the hybrids. But the species uh, I find incredibly beautiful. It is a gorgeous one. Mine yeah. aren't in flower yet at, at Macedon. Uh, I see it more as a very late winter, early spring thing yeah. when it comes into bloom in my Where garden. do you grow it? Outside? Or? Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, it's actually growing underneath the edge of a bamboo hedge yeah. uh, facing basically due south. Yep. Um, so the roots of the bamboo keep it nice and dry in the summer. Mm. It doesn't get any direct sunlight to speak of, but it gets plenty of infused light and it's just mildly self-seeding itself okay that's fantastic so yes i like persicum it's a lovely plant really variable variable leaf pattern variable flower color Mm -hmm. variable in size Um, and i would say that it would be a really good cyclamen for melbourne gardens of course it would um, because of its love of a dry summer dormancy well the, the little dwarf Bred down ones from the big ones yeah. seem to do quite well in people's gardens mm. around Melbourne, although I don't know that they're overly long-lived. Yeah. Uh, but the species should be good. Yeah, I mean, I've had these tubers for 20 years. Yeah, well, there you go. And I don't water them at all in the summer. They yeah. need to be completely dry. Mm. And they, they'll tell you when they need some water, yeah. when they start moving. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. All right, we better get a couple of SMSs in through here because I'm now starting to read some in there. Um Suzanne's uh, sent us a message and she wants to know uh, where she could get black raspberry plants from um, that she wants to plant into a berry patch. I try diggers. Yeah, or Wishing Well Nursery in Mombok. Yeah. I have them. They have a range of um, berries and fruit trees. All right. Um, 
Well, Suzanne, I hope that helps. Um, but, yeah, give diggers a ring, and uh, if you're in the right area, you could, in fact, try up in the Dandenongs. Yeah, or JFT. Yeah, they're a possibility, I suppose. Yeah. Um, but certainly a lot of your big general garden centres should be stocking berries at this time. They of should years. be in now, shouldn't yeah, they? Yeah, they should be in now. So <coughs> even your larger garden centres and things, you could give them a hoy and see yeah. if you can get something from them. Um, and, uh, all right. Uh, oh, they're moving around a wee bit here. Uh, Oh dear. Well, we've got a, a beginner gardener called Kim who has rung in and she, or she's texted in and wants to have a breakdown of the difference between fertilizers, manures and sea salt solutions and how they differ and what you do with them. So I use sea salt for establishing plants. Yep. Yep. So that when I put something in the garden, it gets a drink of sea sol. Yeah. And I use it for pots. Yeah. And that's about it for the liquids. Yeah. Yeah, well, sea sol and all of those seaweed extracts, because there are other products out there that are basically this similar sort of thing, they're more a tonic, aren't they, than, they are. than actually a feed. Although you've got sea sol power feed these days. Yeah, well, that's yeah. a different thing again, because yep. it's actually got a nutrient value that's to right. it. But sea sol stimulates roots, gets things settled. So and that's how good, you use it. good for foliage feeding. Yeah. So that's how you would use that. Now, manures can be seen as a fertiliser. Mm-hmm, uh, I would have thought so. Yeah, and I would lump the two together. Um, the thing is that you've got organic fertilisers, which include manures. So that could be blood and bone manure. Uh, Dynamic sort of, lifter. Yeah, which is based on chicken manure, yeah. all that sort of stuff. And they can be used as general garden feeds. They're slowish acting, um, so they'll go into the ground gently and they'll feed your plants gently. Chemical fertilisers, those that are made out of um, uh, rock minerals and other sundry things, often are much more wham-bam when they... Aggressive, I'd say. Yeah, they are, uh, unless they're palletised slow release, like like the Osmocote Mm. range of products, which work fairly slowly and and therefore work um, safely. But generally, those bags of white powdery fertilisers that you buy out in the shops, I don't don't use them. I restrict them to pots. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. you could use them a little bit for pot-grown plants if you're trying to push things along a bit. But use them with discretion and keep in mind that they don't actually add any humus or any soil conditioning products. In fact, they're probably not that good for the soil. No. That's always been my view. Yeah. Well, I think that they can be somewhat detrimental to things like earthworms and and other sundry soil organisms. So I try and avoid using those types of fertilisers. So I hope that gives you a little bit of an idea, Kim. If, Uh, If you're just learning about gardening, the most important thing I think to understand is mulching. Um building up the humus in your soil. And if you do that on a regular basis, then you don't need to feed a great deal. Yeah, yeah. Well, I always say to people that they've got to remember what they're doing is not feeding their plants, they're actually feeding their soil. That's right. And by giving your soil a diversity of products, so Mm -hmm. even with my mulching, I try and vary it a little bit. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, if I can get loosened hay or pea straw one year, uh, I might use... um, uh, mushroom compost, I might put down a layer of manure, I might use tree shreddings another year. I mean, mm. I'll, I will go out of my way to try and diversify the products I put down because I use the analogy that if you're, um, 
if your f- favourite food was plum pudding, you still don't want it three meals a day every day of the year. Mm. You need diversity in your diet. And your soil does too, and your plants yeah. do. So the more diversity you put down, the, the better your soil is going to be. Yeah, I mean, I'm a wood chip guy, but, mm. yeah, I've put a lot of it down. Yeah. 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 Well, I do too, and people go, oh, doesn't it take nitrogen out of the no. soil and all that sort of stuff? <laughs> well, that's, that's my attitude too, Craig. Um, I mean, it's just like nature. I mean, trees fall down. Uh, they rot on the ground. The only nitrogen that gets tied up is in the very surface of the soil, which yeah. in fact is not where the root system of your plants are. Yeah. So as long as you're not digging it in, then it's fine. Well, I dig it in. Do you? Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, see, I don't do that, but yeah. uh, I, I would certainly use plenty of fresh wood chips. I mean, at the right. moment, the Dandenong is awash with mulch. <laughs> I, I mean, can well imagine. There has never been an occasion when I've refused a truckload of mulch, yeah. but at the moment I have to. I think at Long Acres I have six truckloads sitting there Goodness waiting me. to get spread. And I use it fresh off the truck, steaming and green, yeah. straight onto the garden. Mm. No issues. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, I certainly use it that way, but I certainly haven't... Bo- well, I don't dig in anymore. I mean, I started by preparing the soil by digging it over and getting things into it because my, well, <laughs> what's laughingly called my soil was actually yellow clay when mm. I bought the block. So I started by preparing the ground by digging. Mm. So I, my crowbar and I got quite close for many years, uh, and I'd be breaking up the clay, digging it out, yeah. making a trench, filling the trench with compost and manure and other stuff, and then putting clay into that as into the mix. And by the time I'd finished, I had the next trench dug. So yeah. I was sort of doing this trench composting system right through the garden. Now that I've done that throughout the whole garden, and it only took 30 years, um, I just keep throwing stuff on top. Yeah. So the, you, when, when I say dig in, I don't actively go over the garden and dig yeah. a whole heap of wood chip in. But if I'm planting something... Yeah, it goes in with it. It goes in and, and you know, I might get half a barrow load and dig a big pile and just to open the soil up and yeah. make watering easy. Yeah, uh, yeah. That's, that's logical. Yeah. That's logical. And I think with wood chip, it takes a long time to build a good layer of humus on top mm. of your soil yeah. many years. Mm. Um, but once you do, it's beautiful. Oh, yeah. Well, I was digging yesterday in one of our borders, um, what I grandiosely call our citrus walk, um, and underneath it I've got little bulbs and things growing along. Mm-hmm. And the soil was just fantastic. Mm-hmm. After all these years of effort and you know, yeah. building up with organic material and stuff, yeah. um, you could eat it. It was just this wonderful, crumbly, blackish That's right. soil, uh, which you know most people would see as mountain soil, but it's soil I actually created. Yeah, and in uh, the soil at my place, you put the spade in just a little bit and it's just full of mycorrhiza. Yeah. Which is a result of the humus. Yeah. yeah. And that means the plants are being fed. Well, exactly. Yeah. So that works really, really well. Yeah. So there we go. So yeah. soils. Uh, so I hope that has helped you a wee bit um, so that you uh, sort of understand how it all works. It's really, it's not so much about being scientific. It's about being intuitive about That's things right. in the garden, I think. Yeah. Um, and, you know... Lots of people say, how much do I put on, you know, whether it be feed or water or whatever it is. And it's really about being intuitive about what looks like it needs. Yeah. I mean, I remember going to St. Mary's in North Melbourne. A friend of mine was living in the apartments attached to it. And there was a great big ficus macrophylla in the front growing in the lawn, which was not looking that happy. You know, it would have been as old as a church. And they had an arborist come to have a look at it. And he said, it's hungry. Give it 200 kilos of dynamic lifter. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> and, and I think 
people forget what big organisms they're working with. Well, exactly. And, the, and the scale of the feeding that they need. Yeah. Yeah. Goodness me, 200. Oh, yes, that's a lot. <laughs> but it, it was an enormous thing, as you know. <laughs> yeah. oh, we've had somebody ring in and say that they have, in fact, uh, moved an isoplexus canariensis successfully in winter but I don't like the new location. Can I move it again? Um, well, if you moved it once, it could be worthwhile trying again. Yeah. Um, that sounds like they're taking after you, Craig. That's right, moving, exactly. <laughs> you come and talk to me. Yeah, yeah. moving everything around yet again. Yeah. Um, Put a set of wheels underneath it. Yeah. I have to say, though, isoplexus is so quick-growing, I'd be quite happy just to plant another one yeah. if it's in the wrong yeah. place. So, uh, I mean, some plants will move, but they don't always then become as vigorous again as what they once That's were. That's right, they limp along. Yeah, yeah, and I'd rather have a fresh young plant. Yeah. And when you think about it, most of these things aren't even going to cost you as much as it would cost you to have lunch out. Mm. Um, and hopefully you've got nothing to show for lunch out after a short time. Um, uh, And I just think plants aren't that dear, so why not, in fact, go out and buy another one? Yeah. Um, All right, now, a caller has asked if your nursery is open and accessible, please. Which of us? Uh, You. Yeah, well, it's obviously not open at the moment, but normally I'm closed on Tuesdays. So open the rest of the week. Yeah. And your times are? 10 till 5. 10 till 5, yeah. All right, so keep in mind that, yes, uh, neither Craig nor my nursery is open until after Tuesday at least. Yeah. Um, It's just too hard to deal with. uh, Yeah, and then, you know, I mean, I had a crack at click and collect, but there's not enough of a population around me to, yeah. for that to be feasible. Yeah, I have to say right. it'd be the same with me, I have to say. Yeah. All right, we've got a call coming in, so let's see if we can pick up on Laura in North Melbourne. Are you there, Laura? Yes. Ah, good morning. How are you this morning? Fine. Good. And how can we help you? Well, I've got a large tree dahlia. There's mm. one very big stalk going up with lots of flowers on, mm. but there are three little ones. One particular, I want to cut back. Do I have to wait till the um, greenery dies back, or can I cut it back now? Well, you can't hurt it. No, I'd cut it back. Yeah, if you it's in the cut way, it back, cut it back. Yeah, just cut it back. Cut I it mean, back now. Yeah, because yeah, the short shoots aren't likely to keep growing and become flowering shoots anyway this late no. in the season. So you're not going to get flowers on them. So if they're in the way, chop them off. Yep, good. Do so that. does that help? <laughs> Yes, it does. All right. I'd be pleased to do that today. And a very brief question. Mm-hmm. If I put um, oh, fertiliser on the garden, mm-hmm. should I leave it for a certain time before putting another brand on? It depends on what you're putting. I think I've got some... Oh, I can't even think what it is. When things are very, very yellow and nothing will make them colour up, mm-hmm. I... What would I put on? Well, you'd probably put down a high nitrogen or right. uh, an iron-type based uh, uh, yeah. product. Um, right. Now, if I put iron on it, yeah. do I leave it alone for a while or can I then put um, seaweed or a... No, just, I'd just go for it. Yeah. Uh, I think people get a little too nervous about these things. It's a matter of quantities, not the varieties and when you put them down. So as long as you don't go completely nuts with whatever you're using, um, when I have it, I use it. 
Yeah, I'd say there are many fallacies, as many fallacies as there are about mulching, yeah. about fertiliser. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, yeah, so iron isn't, of course, a fertiliser. It's just a an element that will, in, help, uh, in fact, help green up things that are looking a bit yeah. yellow. And that will take uh, some time, wouldn't it? Yeah, it will take yeah. time to go take. down. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so I'd put your iron down, but I'd also give things a feed with something else if, uh, if you've got something to put down. I mean, for us at Macedon, it's a bit early to do major feeding yet because a lot of it's going to leach through the ground before the spring hits. Well, it's in a pot, unfortunately. Yeah, well, if it's in a pot, use your iron, and then I would be inclined to just use a slow-release fertiliser like an Osmocote. And the liquid like feed that. now. Yeah. Mm. Uh, liquid yeah. feed is immediately available, and, and, and you could spray some on the foliage as well. Yeah. yeah. Mm. yeah. All right? Yes, yes, thank you very much. That's an absolute pleasure. You know, I'm astonished by the stories people come up with about fertiliser. Yeah. Uh, I'm a cereal feeder, just like mm. I'm a cereal mover. Mm. <laughs> so I'm constantly feeding. Yeah. Um, liquid feeding in the in the polytunnel for things that are coming on twice, three times a week yeah. with a sprayer. Wow. Yeah. Mm. So there you go. So if you're feeling bored, go out and feed. Yep, that's right. <laughs> yeah. uh, All right, I you. hope that helps. Right. It does. Right. Bye. Bye. And if, if you're applying fertiliser to the ground, it's good to rake off the mulch. Yeah. Put the fertiliser down and then rake the mulch back on again. Yeah, that way it's getting in closer contact That's with right. the That's right, and I think it lasts longer as if it's not in, in getting the, the air circulation around mm. it. Well, I tend to find if I'm using manures, particularly things like horse manure, which tends to bring in quite a few weed seeds and mm-hmm. stuff, I try and make sure that's under the mulch anyway. Yep, that's right. Um, yep. And that way I alleviate the weedy issue, uh, and yes, the... the Manure itself is in closer contact to the soil, so mm. therefore it'll get down into the plant's roots better. Yeah. Um, so it depends on what I'm putting around. I mean, I quite regularly bring home bags of duck manure because there's a, a duck farm down in Riddles Creek. And mm-hmm. I'm driving past That'd and they've got good. a few bags out the front. Yeah. It's nice and clean. Yeah. Um, and so it's one of those ones that I'll sprinkle over the vegetable garden. Um, I sprinkle it over mulches and things a bit. I use it more like a condiment than a than a sort of ingredient so I just sprinkle it around everywhere and I don't care whether it goes over or under or whatever I yeah. just run it around all over the place and and I do that f- fairly frequently yeah. in fact one year I had access to um, truckloads of duck manure. They used right. to have a guy that was going in and bringing it back by the truckloads. So that would be exciting. Yeah, well, uh, four, I think it was four 10-metre truckloads of duck manure later. Goodness me. Uh, we did burn the hell out of a couple of rhododendrons and a couple of other things around the garden. But having said that, within a very short span of time, the garden was going nuts. But yeah. My next-door neighbour also went nuts. Uh, and she said if I ever did that again, she'd kill me because she... She reckoned that she was gagging on the smell of the duck manure. For how long? Oh, a few days. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, I hardly noticed it after the first day or so. That's right. But, you know, when it was in the steaming pile sitting out the front of the garden, I could sort of understand people getting a little bit upset about it. But, uh, yeah, so the year of the duck manure was quite something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The only plants I've ever burnt with fertiliser is using chemicals yeah. and in pots. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, chemical fertilisers are always more of a risk. That's right, yeah. yeah. Now, we have had a caller call in, and they want to know about hippiastrum bulbs in a pot that hasn't flowered. Uh, should I have lifted them, and can I do it now? 
Well, I'm not much of a hippie astrum grower, I have to say, uh, but hippies are in leaf now. Yeah, I'd be inclined to do them when they're dormant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah they should be dormant in the summer. Yeah. And if they're pot grown, maybe they're maybe they're not being dried out enough. Maybe they're not getting enough nutrients. I bet you they haven't been fed properly. Yeah. So they do need a bit of feeding. Yep. I mean, they're a big flowering big, thing. And big plants. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. So I'd wait till their their leaves start looking scruffy later in the season and mm-hmm. perhaps repot. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. And and yeah, but now you could give them a feed. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yes. Oh, and somebody else has texted in, P.S. My Eliagnus hedge is fantastic. Open paddock setting on a farm, strong north winds, looks great. Yep, that's right. So there yeah. we go. Uh, yeah, so, yes, Eliagnus, I think it's one of those uh, unsung heroes, uh, potentially. Yeah. Um, there's a couple of people at Mount Macedon that are growing the large grey-leafed one, which is generally sold around as a Benji on yeah, that's right. Um, although it's actually not. Isn't it? No. No, it's another plant that's been incorrectly labelled for years. Okay. Um, and unfortunately, uh, I read about its correct name in what was the Plantsman and is now the Plant Review because they're trying not to be sexist. Mm. Um, and it's apparently Eliagnus submacrophylla. Submacrophylla. Is, is the name for a Benji okay. But it's a fantastic hedge. Yeah. And there's at least two or three well-developed hedges around Mount Macedon of it. And it always looks smart. Yeah, that's right. And, and not so fast that you're constantly pruning. Uh, yes, well, you give it a good pruning once a year, yeah. uh, and you can sort of get away with it. That's right. It may need a secondary tip pruning, yeah. but not yeah. nothing like Protosporum. And that's the other issue, of course, with hedges. People want hedges to grow really fast, but they forget that if they want to keep them to a certain height, once they've got to that, then if they're really fast growing, you've got to hack them all the time. Constantly. Yeah. yeah. I don't like fast. No, no, I think I'd rather be patient with these things yeah, and have that's something right. that's going to be a long-term yeah. value to the garden. Yeah. So there we go. And, uh, oh, goodness, we've got a whole pile of other things coming in. Uh, we've got uh, a question. Uh, could you please explain the pruning of the following? Oak-leafed hydrangeas and can I prune now? And rugosa roses. All right. Well, the oak-leafed hydrangeas you prune as the flowers are spent, it's yeah. fading. Yeah. And so you really don't prune, more of an autumn job. And you don't prune them like you would a classical macrophylla no, hydrangea. No, completely different. Yeah, you leave them as woody shrubs and you yeah. take the dead flowers out mainly. That's right. Yeah. So that's straightforward. Uh, Rugosa roses, again, they're sort of in a similar sort of vein, aren't they? You don't prune them like you would a normal hybrid tea or flora. No, but you'd need to take out the old, old branches, I think, yeah. and, and trim off the spent flower heads and... Yeah. Just open them up a little bit. Yeah, and I guess it depends on how you're using them. I mean, if you because rugosa roses can be hedged, yep. so you could in fact just trim over them. Mm. Um, uh, but yes, they're not a plant that requires really, really heavy pruning. Oh, I've looked after them in a garden that I maintain, and I find that if you don't open them up from time to time, they get yeah. a lot of dead wood in them. Yeah. Now, oh goodness, me gracious, we've got uh, uh, a whole pile of things that have come up. All right, now, um, Doug. Um, uh, Doug wants to know uh, he's got an Osmanthus heterophylla purpurea which is spindly will it respond to pruning yes and if so when should I prune it also my Sarkococca hedge is covered in flower buds uh, what a great plant and that's Doug from Altona Sarkococca is a great plant and mm. the perfume is superb yep. and it's one of those plants that you 
you walk through the garden and you get this perfume and you look around for where it is, yeah. what it's coming from, because the flowers are so inconspicuous. Yeah, but it is. Yeah. It's a great little plant. Yeah. It is. Now, we're getting awful lot of texts coming and through. And the Osmanthus respond really oh, well yeah. to pruning. Yeah, because yeah. they can be hedged and things as Absolutely. well. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Um, we're getting lots of texts and we're trying to get through them. Uh, but do keep in mind you can ring. Please ring. We'd love to have a chat to you as well on, li- on air. So uh, you've got a 100% chance of getting in if Nobody you ring. Talks to each other these days, Stephen. It's all done with text. Yeah, well, I'm sorry. I, I'm old school, and I would like to chat to people. Same. And sometimes you, you go through these texting frenzies with people, and you resolve an issue which could have been resolved in 30 seconds. Well, exactly. With so a conversation. Yes. Yeah, I regularly get messages from people who want something from the nursery, and I think if they'd only rung me, I could have explained when it will be That's ready, right. how much it is, what size pot it's yeah. in, uh, whether it's worth their while growing in the first place. All the things that they could ask and talk to me about in person. And you're right. It takes umpteen text messages mm-hmm. to get through to people. So, another thing to keep in mind, folks, uh, is that um, this is the 3CR Gardening Program, and I haven't reintroduced the program since we've been going, because we haven't stopped talking. Um, so, 3CR Gardening Program, welcome aboard. I'm glad to see so many people are, in fact, engaging with us this morning. Um, and I'm Stephen Ryan, Dixonia Rare Plants at Mount Macedon, and of course we have the inimitable Craig Wilson from Gentiana Nursery here as the second guest from uh, the Dandenong, so we're from the hills on either side of Melbourne. That's right. Um, and the ring-in number, uh, if you want to talk to us on air, which I'd love you to do, is 94190155. That's 94190555. Uh, there is also an off-air line, which I keep forgetting to mention, which is 94198377, if you wanted to chat to the folk who are out in the other studio who are dealing with the technical side of the program. Um, so, there we go. Um, all right, I've lost the plot altogether, but that's fine. Uh, please do ring in. We'd love to hear from you. And I guess I could finish off my variegations by talking about one that I'm struggling myself to come to terms with. Um, it's a variegation that you're either going to love or hate. Uh, and it was called Stransvasia. Um, Stransvasia davidiana. Uh, it's now classed as a Fatinia. Right, so it's okay. in the Fatinia genus, so it's now Fatinia davidiana. And this variegated form is one called Palette. And it has the most hectically, mottly, weird variegation you mm. can imagine. Some leaves will be divided down the centre and they'll be green on one side and white on the other. Some will have patches and blotches. You'll have pure white leaves muddled in amongst them. They get a little bit of pink staining in the foliage, particularly in the winter months when the cold hits it. Um, And it's an open, airy shrub to about four metres. Gets classical sort of white Fatinia-like flowers Mm -hmm. in the spring. Very good red berries, I have to say. You get clusters of very good red berries. Which, with a variegation, would be nice. I think it's quite pretty. Uh, But it is one of those irregular, mottly variegations that some people really struggle with. Uh, I guess it's the sort of variegation I can almost understand while there'll be people out there going in. Yeah, I don't know that it would have a place in my garden. Yeah, yeah, it's it's sort of an odd plant. Um, uh, As far as I know, I'm the only one in the country with it. Uh, So if there are people out there who want a bizarre variegated plant uh, that would make a nice background shrub or something. Or if you collect fatinias. Or if you, yeah, yeah, the National (laughs) Fatinia Collection Holder should end up with a plant of this, whoever that person might be. Um, So that's Fatinia Davidiana palette. So it may not be to everybody's taste, but 
I guess it's sort of cheery. Does uh, it have the robustness that you'd associate with uh, your standard? Uh, it's fairly robust, but it's not the dense, bushy plant that you expect of Fatinias. It's yeah. a more open, airy sort of shrub, which mm. I actually quite like. I don't need everything in my garden to be dense to and be bushy. F- yeah. Uh, I mean, there are places for that sort of growth, mm. but in other cases where there's no need to hide something behind, I actually quite like a slightly more open, free-form-looking bush. And you can see through them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. so you get a sense of things behind and all yeah. that sort of stuff. So so I have no objection to it, but, yeah, it is one of those variegations that even I'm struggling to love. Yeah. Um, but it's different and it's interesting and... Um, yeah, the collectors of variegated plants will obviously be interested. And uh, it wouldn't be one that walks out and uh, no, in the piles. I sell an occasional one, yeah. um, but it's nice to know it's in the country and that people can get it. I do grow the green leaf form as well, which is probably a classier plant mm-hmm. in some ways. Not quite as vulgar and crass. Yeah. Uh, but uh, And I'm on the hunt for the yellow-fruited one, which I don't think's ever made it into the country. Okay. Uh, I'd love to get a yellow-fruited um, Fatinia davidiana. Uh, Unlikely to come in now. Yeah, well, it's rosaceous, so it's in a yeah. family that there's a lot of disease issues overseas, yeah. so we're unlikely to be able to get a, an import permit for it, unfortunately. So there we go. Um, all right. Uh, actually, you mentioned something before. Uh, moving on to another ah, direction, witch, witch hazels. hazels. Yeah. Now, they're in flower. Now, what do you think of them as a potential plant for Melbourne suburbia? Absolutely so, not. Yeah, well, that's what I sort yeah. of figure. Yeah. Uh, I know I've got customers that try, yeah. uh, but I think the witch hazels are more for the hills. I think Shemananthus would be a better bet yeah. for Melbourne. And you do see good plants of that around. Yeah, so, that's right. Yeah, so the winter sweet would probably be the better winter flowering mm-hmm. plant for Melbourne. But I do love the witch hazels if you've got the right place for them because yep. they're elegant shrubs. Uh, you need that balance of sun and shade for witch hazel. Yeah, yeah. yeah. If it's in too much shade, it tends not to flower terribly well. That's right. Uh, and too much sun, they burn. Yeah, and you don't get the autumn colour and yeah. too much shade either. Well, that's true. And actually, the autumn colour's something that people sort of forget about with this because oh, it, it can be beautiful. Yeah, yeah, they yeah. can be fabulous. And I don't know whether you've noticed, but I certainly have noticed that most of the time, the colour of the flower, whether it be a yellow one or a coppery orange one, or the burgundy ones, the autumn colour tends to align with the colour of the flower. Okay, I have to keep an eye out for that. Yeah, so pallander in my garden at home, which is a pale lemon, goes a really nice yellow in the autumn before Mm -hmm. it sheds. Uh, Yelena, uh, which is a a sort of a burnt, dusty orange one, tends to go oranges and reds in Mm. the autumn. And Diana and Ruby Lace, uh, Mm. Ruby... Glow, mm. I'll get it right in a minute, uh, tend to go burgundy. Okay. So the autumn colour tends to, in most cases, uh, uh, align the with the flower colour, except for Arnold's Promise, which tends to go, although it's a yellow flowered one, tends to go more orange right. in the autumn. Yeah. So they're an interesting group of plants. Yeah. So there you go. Um, all right. Uh, have you got something else you would like to talk to us about? Well, you've bought in one and I've bought in one. So <laughs> yeah, we might as well. Halpera or... Um, Pseudopanax, the the New Zealand ones, um, are really nice plants for the garden. They are. And they hybridise very freely with each Mm. other, so you get all these weird variations. Mm. The one that I've got in my hand at the moment is Telstar, which would look like it's a cross between Lysonii and Ferox or one of the... Yeah. Weird leafed ones. Yeah, sort of three leaflets that are really long and narrow. That's right. uh, And slightly serrated around the edge. Yeah. Um, Dark, dark green. And its habit is to grow 
tall and narrow. Ah, right. Well, so that, it only yeah. spread out by 1.5 metres and it'll come up to two or three metres. Goodness me. Yeah. Uh, well, the one I bought in is a variegated one because I had a variegated sort of theme going this morning and it's uh, one called Gold Splash, yeah. uh, which isn't very stable. So it's you do not stable. To, no. Nah, nah, you have to keep your eye on it. it. It reverts to green almost as soon as you turn your back on it. But I don't care. Yeah. It doesn't really matter in a lot of ways. Yeah. Uh, but... The other thing that we should mention about the pseudopanaxes, and I don't know whether this is something that you've um, sort of cottoned on to, they actually can make quite reasonable indoor plants too. Yeah, that's right. And, of course, in this yeah. day and age where house plants have come back into their own yeah. in a major way, mm-hmm. uh, uh, and... Um, I recommend these to people yeah. as potential house plants. And I would have thought Telstar would be fantastic yeah. because of its tall, narrow habit. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Be good down your hallway. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, so consider some of these things. Generally speaking, I think anything that has a, a really glossy, thick, heavy leaf mm. tends to lend itself to indoor cultivation. Well, it's indicative of a plant that likes shade, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, well, it yeah. is, and they're also easier to keep clean. Yeah. So if you've got a furry leaf or a heavily indented leaf, mm-hmm. uh, once the dust settles in it, it can be really hard to deal with. Mm. Whereas with something like a pseudopanax, you can just rub over them with a damp cloth yeah. and they're clean again. And there's a nice uh, red-leafed form too. Yes. Purium is a very nice a, plant. Yep, that's a good yeah, plant yeah. Uh, and in fact if you look around there's quite a number of them I've got one in the garden and I'm sure the person it was named after was a charming person but it's not a great name for a plant Cyril Watson Cyril Watson <laughs> oh yeah yeah dark uh, green yeah dark green and it's sort of almost like a duck foot that's right uh, yeah. and so it's got shallow lobes and it's uh, it's really a handsome looking thing mm. as well they're, they're also a great hedging plant because yeah. they, they prune really well yeah so yeah, yeah so consider the pseudopanax mm-hmm. um, and they are a great mainly New Zealand group of plants. Yeah. Uh, there are some off-lying... They go through of, the Pacific, don't yeah, they? Yeah, there's, I know there's one or two that were in South America if they're still in pseudopanax. Mm. Um, and so they and they found on some of the islands and things. Uh, certainly the Chathams has got yeah. a range of its own pseudopanaxes. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and I think and there is the bizarre leafed forms, ferox and... What's oh, crassifolia. Crassifolia, which yeah. have these long serrated leaves um, yeah. for the first 10, 15 years. Yeah, they look like hacksaw blades. They do look like tree. hacksaw blades. And, <laughs> and then they become just an ordinary round-leafed shrub tree yeah. and get quite tall. But what I did with mine, which, which was crassifolia, was getting up to the height where it looked like it might transform. So I cut it back. Mm. And lo and behold, the, the long leaves came back. Oh, so it went back into its juvenile form. Mm. Isn't that interesting? Mm. I've never been game to try that, but yes, that put a saw through it. Yeah, and see. <laughs> did it come up with multiple stems? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it did. But it went juvenile again. Yep. Yeah, isn't that interesting? Happy days. Yeah, <laughs> I do love the juvenile form of them. I have to say they they're yeah. very engaging. Well, once they became a become a tree and then lose that juvenile form, there's really not much point in having no, them. The only good thing about them at that point is they do get a nice trunk. Okay. Because they get this fluted sort of uh, interesting right. trunk. They do. So the trunk can be worthwhile, yeah. uh, even though the lo- leaf loses its image. And I believe some of those pseudopanaxes were actually put into different genera between the juvenile form and the adult form when they were first discovered because they were so different from each other and of course they hadn't seen them go through their stages Uh, so the juvenile form I think was in a different genus altogether than the adult (laughs) form so that's how weird they are 
You see them in New Zealand planted, and this is a classic New Zealand planting. Mm. They'll plant them in groups with um, one of the brown K-Rex underneath them. Oh, yeah. Yeah, nice combination. Yeah. It's interesting, uh, actually, that New Zealand's flora, as close as New Zealand is to Australia, is so uniquely different. And the two things that stand out for me are the brownness of the New Zealand flora's foliage, because right, yeah. so yeah. almost everything has its brownish yeah. s- sort of tinge to it. Particularly at this time of the year. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, you know, so brown and burgundy and bronze and all those sort of colours show up a lot in the New Zealand flora. And, of course, plants that have tiny leaves on devericated branches yeah. as well. So that sort of zigzaggy pattern yeah. with the tiny little leaves. Um uh, and, of course, the theory is, and I'm not sure whether you agree or not, is, of course, that New Zealand didn't ever have any browsing mammals. It only had the giant mowers, mm. which are a bird. And, of course, birds peck. They don't munch like a, a, a cow would or something. That's right. And so by having zigzaggy branches and tiny leaves, you make it harder for the mower to actually eat you. Yeah. And I think the brown is also one of those things that things with brown leaves tend to be less visible. Do you think that's mower protection? I think that's mower protection as well. Well, They they were the principal grazing species in New Zealand, and then there would have been a lot of them. Oh, yeah, yeah. So so plants evolved to try and protect themselves from the mowers, and because of their pattern of eating, they actually developed all these things that we didn't have to have plants develop here in Australia. So uh, the tiny leaves, the devarication and the brown, uh, and a lot of them go into their adult form once they're taller than a mower. That's right. So those pseudopanaxes do that. Um, The cowries start brown, but they go green as they get up Mm -hmm. to a certain height. So once they're above mower, they go green. Uh, So it all seems to make sense. Yeah, and and the, the, the devaricating plants crosses into genus which you would never expect to see a devaricating plant. No. Things like Caprosma. Yeah. Yeah. It's really weird. Yeah. Yeah. All right, we better go in. We've got a caller come through, so we'll go in and see if we can... All right, Olive, are you there? Olive, good morning. Olive, Olive, are you there? All right, I think I'm going to have to put Olive on hold. I don't think she's... um, uh, I think she's there, but she didn't realise we were talking to her. Um, so we might try another one. Uh, line. John from Ringwood, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Ah, good. How are you this morning, John? Well, thank you. Um, I would like to talk about uh, mulch mm-hmm. and vegetables. Now then, uh, at our community garden, we get a lot of mulch. And various types, and uh, yeah, we uh, used it for our paths. But a lot of people put it around their vegetable. Mm. Is that uh, is that a good idea? Depends on what the vegetables are to a certain extent. Mm. I mean, I wouldn't mulch around things like onions, for instance, sake, because they need sun shining in near the bulbs. So you wouldn't even put some pea straw or... No, uh, probably wouldn't around onions. Um, But, you know, if you want to mulch under your tomatoes and Mm. capsicums and all that sort of thing, that'd be fine. Again, I probably wouldn't mulch around sweet corn because it wants some warmth getting down to the soil as well, so I'd probably avoid that. It really depends. I mean, I've just mulched my garlic, uh, and I've done that mainly not so much to uh, to do anything other than just to keep weeds down mm. because garlic hates competition of weeds. So uh, I put a little bit of uh, fine mulch around my garlic that I 
made from branches I'd shoved through my own shredder, mm. um, and that's just to keep the ground clean. So I would have thought no harm. Yeah, I, I, in general, I wouldn't think it's a problem. Uh, certainly, putting mulch down on paths is a good idea because then once it's rotted down, you can actually use it as more compost, in fact, than, yeah. than mulch. So you rake it off and replace yeah, it. Yeah, and we do that on a couple of our paths at home that we keep covered in wood chips. Mm-hmm. Uh, once they rot down, we clean it off, dig back to the original soil level, uh, use that into the garden beds, mm. uh, and then put down some fresh mulch. So, yeah. Oh, lovely. Yeah, but uh, I th- I, look, I can't you... see any reason not to mulch your veggie mm. garden with the exception of a few plants that Stephen mentioned. Yeah, yeah. It sounds good. Yeah. We do get a, it's not a, um, a constant um, uh, source in the sense that uh, we get pine and uh, other, like a, uh, a palm tree type uh, mulch. Mm-hmm. Is that all right to use or is that, yeah. is there something in pine that is not? Uh, compatible. No, I've never discriminated about species. No, I think this, you know, oh, okay. we Let's get people who it. say you can't use pine, we get people who say you can't use eucalypt. Um, all these things fall over in the forest and rot, yeah. and they become part of the natural ecosystem. Yeah. So uh, when I get a truckload of tree shreddings from one of the arborists around the area, you never know what they've been chomping up in, That's in right. there, yeah. and I don't worry about it. No, sometimes it's a whole range of species. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it can be. You know, yeah. In fact, I get quite excited if they're throwing things like wattle and other legume things yeah. through it, because I know that's going to have a higher nitrogen yeah. level. Um, but, you know, it's not part of the thing I worry about personally. And, and the, the smell of a steaming pile of eucalypt mulch is fantastic. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> I agree with that. <laughs> okay, well, look, uh, thank you very much for that. No, uh, it's a pleasure, John. Appreciate right. the help. Thank we'll you. We'll catch up. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Um, All right. Now, we're going to try and bring in uh, Terry. Are you there? Yes, I am here. <laughs> there was a mistake before, I think. Ah, <laughs> yes. Thank you, um, Stephen and Craig. It's really interesting talking, um, listening to you. Oh, it's a Good. pleasure. Um, Now, my question is, I have a couple of Daphnes, the white one and also the pink one, Adora, I think. I don't know Mm. the white one's name. Um, But the yellowing and the white flowers are not um, forming properly. They sort of look as though they're dropping off. How long have they been in the ground? Oh, a little while. (laughs) I'm not quite sure. What, 10, 15 years? Uh, Yes, maybe that long. Yeah, they're reaching the end, I'd say. Mm. And, oh, would you? And no, also, this year's been a particularly wet one. No, I wouldn't uh, like that. And no. Daphne's will drown quite easily. Uh, okay. So Craig's right. At 10, 15 years, you're doing quite well with a Daphne. Uh, yeah. You hear, of, you hear of people regularly who've got a 30-year-old one and what have you, yeah. but yes, that's the well, exception. Well, I did have a longer one. Sorry yeah. for yeah. That, interrupting. No, that's yeah. right. Uh, so that's more the exception than the rule. Um, yeah. And when a Daphne's going off, a Daphne goes off. The, the, yes. the, they have a long, slow decline. So my okay. inclination is just to pull it out and get a new one in. All and, right, okay. and can I just suggest that you don't plant back in quite the same spot again, just All in right. case there's some Daphne virus around, because yeah. uh, oh, it does okay. tend to hang in the ground um, yeah. for some time. So whenever I replant Daphne's in the garden at home, I always try and find a different spot for them each time. Whether it really works or not, I'm not sure, but I, it certainly doesn't do any harm. 
No, fair enough. I mean, it sometimes can be quite heartbreaking when you have to pull out a big old Daphne that you've had for many years, but you just do it. Okay. Because they'll never look good again. No, okay. I mean, part of the pink one's looking really good, and the white one has never got as big as the um, pink one. Would that be right? Yeah. Um, No, well, actually, I find the white one quite vigorous, usually. Best perfume, the white one. Yeah. Oh, it's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. So, yeah, so start looking around for a replacement plant somewhere um, and get your ground prepared and ready to plant it. And I would mm. certainly plant it towards the end of winter if you, if you can source a plant uh, yeah. and start the whole cycle again. Oh, okay. And with the, um, do you feed, is it a good idea to feed them or not? I've never fed them. I just mulch them. Yeah, yeah, Do not, not yeah, specifically. Well, mulched and everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Daphne's are not greedy plants. They don't yeah. need a lot of feeding, uh, no. so they should pick up most of the nutrients they want out of right. rotting down and mulch. Have a have a look for the too, new one. I, There's yeah, one around right. called Perfume Princess. Perfume Princess, which is a okay. hybrid between Baloa and Odora, and it's okay. fantastic. All right, then yeah. Perfume Princess. Yeah, yep. really strong grower. It's a really strong grower. Okay. All right. And also, could I take cuttings from them or not? I wouldn't wouldn't take cuttings from a sick plant. No. No. The Daphne cuttings is Christmas Day. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I know. Thank you. And also my um, gardenia, Mm. um, it's the radicans, that's a small one, isn't it? Yeah. Um, Now, that's yellowing, and that's been yellow for quite a while now. Mm. So... Well, gardenias will often yellow off a bit in the, in the winter because uh, they don't yeah. like the cold weather particularly. Mm. So yeah. it wouldn't surprise me if you've got a slightly yellowy daf- uh, gardenia yep. at this time Gard- of the year. But yeah. again, make sure the drainage is good. Gardenias hate wet feet. Um, yeah. And so, you know, even if you've got to dig a trench along the face of it to take water away, I would be tempted to do that if you think that there is a water issue. Okay. All right, then. Well, thank you so much for your help. That's Thank a pleasure. That's a pleasure. Yeah, enjoy listening to you. Thank All you. Right. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. Goodness gracious, they've been coming and going all the time. Now, Ruth from Bentley uh, wants to know if there's any local nurseries where she could see high-go camellias. Unfortunately, she can't get up to your nursery, apparently. Yeah. Um, I don't know of anywhere. Yeah, yeah so I'm yeah. not sure there is. I don't think there is. I don't think they're even sold in Melbourne. No. I got mine from a nursery in Queensland. Yeah. They came down in a box. All right. Uh, the other possibility, of course, is if they're individually labelled as such, there's probably some high goes in the collection at the Melbourne Botanic Gardens. Yeah. You could go and at least see potentially some there. Mm-hmm. But I'm not sure whether they're labelled as specifically high go camellias. But you I would just... recognise them instantly, I yeah. think, with a with big boss of yellow stamens. Yeah. 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 So that might be worthwhile. Otherwise, you'll have to wait till the lockdown's over and make the effort to go up and well, see. That's play. right. It's... Um, yeah, it's, it's odd that they're not, not popular, but they're not. No. Yeah. Even yeah. the japonicas aren't selling that well these days. It's, it's all about Sasanqua. Yeah, they seem to have taken over, don't they? They do. And I can remember, oh, God, 40 years ago in my old family nursery, probably longer, 50 years ago, um, nobody wanted Sasanqua camellias. It was all about japonicas and reticulatus. And you would have had a huge range of them. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. that was the way it was. And, you know, yeah. and the Williams Eye hybrids were terribly popular. Yeah. All those sort of Margaret Waterhouses and all those. They are so beautiful. Yeah. Oh, they are. They're gorgeous camellias. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, things... Wax and wane. It's like, you know, 20 years ago, everybody planted species and old world roses. Now it's getting really hard to buy.
by any of them. That's right, it is. You know, the nursery yeah. seemed to have gone off in another direction altogether. It's all about latest release. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's so it would seem. Yeah. Uh, all right, um, now I better just check. Uh, oh, this might be something you know about. I'm not familiar with, well, I'm familiar with the um, genus, but I'm not familiar with the species. Somebody wants us to talk about uh, Personia umbricera. I'm not familiar with that personia. The, the native ones? Yeah. Yeah. The um, only one I grow is G-Bung. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know them. And, and, and it hasn't coped with pruning. No. So I don't prune it very little. Yeah. Um, and it, it looks to me like a bit like a Daphne, that it's not going to live for oh, an yeah. awfully long time. Yeah. 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 But, but otherwise, no. I would save that question if I was the um, uh, ringer in uh, for when AB or yeah. uh, one of our other people who come on board who have a particular penchant for native plants yeah. uh, is actually working on the program. Or give Karanga a ring. Or give Karanga a ring. That would be a, a perfectly good idea as well. Uh, so I'd try that out. Uh, now we've got somebody else who's texted in uh, somebody who doesn't drive uh, wants to know if there's any organisations who arrange affordable day trips to nurseries and gardens Um, garden clubs yeah garden clubs are the way to go with those sort of things if you've got a local garden club most of them run tours Uh, I mean they're not cheap cheap anymore because it's getting quite expensive to hire coaches and things and it would depend where you live but I know know that the Waverley Garden Club's very active Now, it's saying here that the local garden clubs closed down. Well, a lot of the garden clubs aren't working at the moment because of the COVID thing. But given enough time, uh, those that have sort of gone into recess because of COVID will come back again. Um, And so, really, I can't think of any other way around it because the garden clubs do it as a service for their members so they tend to keep the prices down if you go through any commercial operator they're obviously doing it to make a profit so it's not going to be as inexpensive as it might be so I mean, a lot of the garden clubs are in a bit of strife. You know, the younger people don't really do clubs these days. Mm. Yes, they all seem to be terribly busy with work and children and And devices. Yeah, and devices. (laughs) Um, But uh, garden clubs are a wonderful resource. If people would only engage with them more, I mean, you've got all that acquired knowledge uh, of all those older members. That's right. Yeah. Uh, and and you, local you, knowledge. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, you can't get that off Google and you can't get it out of a reference book. Uh, you've got to get it from somebody who's doing it locally. I've found Google with plants to be particularly useless. It can be. Um, because you, you, there's always an agenda. Yeah. Nothing's up there just for the sake of information. Yeah. So, yeah. So if a plant is wanting to be, or somebody wants to sell a plant, they're not going to tell you that it hangs on to its dead flowers for three months after flowering mm-hmm. and they look like dead bits of chamois hanging in the tree. Yeah. They'll tell you how gorgeous it is for the week it's in bloom. That's right. And also you don't know where the information's been posted from. Mm. So you might look up a plant and, and the information that you get comes from Sweden. Well, you know, it's not really going to be helpful for an Australian uh, garden. No, it won't, uh, unfortunately. Uh, but anyhow, now, I just wanted to quickly mention another plant uh, that I bought along. Uh, you bought in Cyclum and Persicum. Mm-hmm. I bought in a wee plant. I mean, it's uh, if you can see it, it's a, a miserable little plant. But one of the, I think one of the cutest Cyclum at this time of the year has got to be Coom. Yeah. Uh, C-O-U-M, the, the little winter flowering yeah. species. Uh, it's such a cute, chubby little thing. Coom's fantastic, yeah. and, and, and it's rampant in my garden. I mean, I have vast patches of it, yeah. self-seeds in the lawn, and I have seen it in Melbourne gardens. Oh, yeah. yeah. It, it, if it's a well-maintained garden, mm. it's yeah. not going to uh, 
survive neglect. No. Yeah. But, yeah, I, I find actually the genus in general are pretty easy. Yeah. I mean, there's always exceptions. Rolfsianum can be difficult to keep. Uh, Rolfsianum's been struck off the list. Oh, has it? <laughs> I've still got two of them in my, um, in my what I call my oxalarium, where most yeah. of my winter-growing oxaluses are. Yeah. And they didn't flower this year, but they have flowered before. I've mm. had good flowers on them. And one of them's got particularly pretty leaves, so I'm yeah. quite happy. That it's a nice there. foliage plant. Yeah, it yeah. can be really good, but it's a really difficult plant to keep. And the other one that people, particularly in Melbourne, would struggle with, I think, would be the summer flowering one. Um, um, perpurescence. Perpurescence. Yeah. Because it's almost evergreen and it needs to have that little bit of summer moisture the whole time to That's keep right. it ticking over. And it comes from fairly cool areas in the wild. Yeah. I can imagine it being a particularly difficult one to grow in Melbourne. Yeah. But, I mean, hedrofolium can become almost weedy. Coom can certainly take off quite well. Yeah. And most of the others seem easy enough. Graicum should grow in Melbourne without... Graicum would be really good, yeah, I would have thought. Yeah, because it doesn't mind even having a bit of sun. So yeah, that, yeah, and it likes the dry dormancy. Yeah, so yeah. that should be easy. And I'm finding some species that I hadn't really given a great deal of thought of to be quite, quite easy going in the garden, and they just do their own thing. I mean, I've got... Um, uh, Creticum doing really well in the garden yep. at home. Yep. Uh, I've got Cyprium doing really well. Silicium yep. is doing really well. Yep. Uh, Ripandum. Ripandum is becoming a thug. That's right. It's taking yep. off like a mad thing, yep. and it's just sending its first flowers up in the garden at home yep. at the moment. Cedibericum does well. Yeah, it sells seeds quite well. Yep. So they're all really good plants that I think we should be... Um, uh, Really, and really sort of engaging. I think that we, we, Jane and I discussed this a couple of weeks ago, but the, I think you need to get the bulbs in a bit deeper than most people yeah. think. I think that when people say they like to grow on the surface, I would say they tolerate growing on the surface, yeah. but they like to be sunk in a bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's true. Yeah. I think that's true. Um, all right, somebody's rung in. They <laughs> need to build a path on a tight budget. Suggestions? Uh, recycle concrete. Yes, yeah, 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 you could. Crushed concrete. Or you can just use a mulch path. Uh, yep. I mean, you know, we've been talking about tree shreddings and things. Mm -hmm. I mean, you do have to replace them every so often, but yep. they're nice to walk on, um, so why not indeed? Yeah, I mean, everything in my place is done on a tight budget. Yeah. It <laughs> doesn't make me a fortune, yeah. but I find the recycled concrete's really good, Yeah. and it packs down. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So there you go. And, yeah. and look, if you find materials you can recycle, you know, like old bricks or, mm -hmm. or whatever, uh, as long as you're prepared to put the time and effort in, um, it can be done quite cheaply. So there you go. Um, all right. Now, Marie has rung before and spoken about asparagus with tulips. How did it go? Um, uh, I want to plant asparagus and was interested to know. Yes, I did a bit of an experiment a couple mm -hmm. of years ago and I've got a bed of asparagus in my vegetable garden and I decided to plant tulips in amongst the asparagus. Mm -hmm. It works quite well. Um, I plant, I, the asparagus I've got is one of the ones that gets slightly purple to the new shoots as they come up, uh, but it's not one of the dark purpley varieties. Um, and so I planted white asparagus uh, white asparagus, white tulips with the asparagus. Mm -hmm. The only issue I've got with them is that if I could find a tulip cultivar that was 
fairly self-maintaining would be good. Mm -hmm. The problem you've got is that after a period of time, your tulips start to degenerate. So they end up breaking down into smaller bulbs. You get lots of foliage. Lots of foliage and and no flowers. And no flowers. Um, And so my tulips are probably, I don't think I'm going to get anything out of them this year. And anyhow, I let some rocket go to seed in that bed and it's come up amongst the Mm. asparagus this year and I'm not going to seed the tulips even if they come up. Uh, So it's the management that's going to be the issue. If you use some of the species tulips, they'd probably survive. Yeah, they'd probably be better. Or apple dawns, I yeah. find, live for a long time. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, so looking out for the right one is the way to go. Uh, my purple tulips in the rhubarb bed are doing quite well. Um, More than one year? Or? Yeah, I've had two or three years out of them, although they're looking like they're breaking up this year, so I don't think yeah. I'm going to get much out of them this year. Yeah. The issue with the rhubarb bed is to make sure that the rhubarb doesn't actually hold too much foliage through mm-hmm. the winter, so the tulips have the bed, and then you can whip it down. Um, so um, we better go quickly to um, line one. Adam of Heathmont, are you there, Adam? I am. Can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you. You wanted Very to talk good. about Canadian maples? Yes, I have a Canadian maple. It's only four, four or five years old. And um, I'm wanting to sort of treat it like a shrub and cut it back. Mm-hmm. Is that is it going to give up the ghost if I cut it back every year or is it, can no. it handle it? It'll handle it. But when you do that to trees, they never quite look right, I think. Yeah. They have to be a certain size. I mean, you could get it up to four four metres and pollard it, which might work yep. better than trying to bring it right down. Yeah, as a shrub, I think it's going to look very odd. I agree with Craig on that. Yeah. It'll survive it, though. Yeah. I would, uh, if you wanted to do that, I'd be more inclined to plant one of the palmatums. Yeah, plant one of the smaller growing ones. Yeah. Yeah. Mm, But they can't handle the sun quite as well. No, they can't. You know what? uh, The wind. The the dissectum maples in my garden on Black Saturday were one of the few shrubs that didn't burn. Mm. And I think you'll find with the palmatums that once they're well established that they don't, they don't burn so much. Mm. It's, it's, it's the first five years. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, So yeah. and they would certainly make a better shrubby type plant. Absolutely, they prune maples. beautifully, yeah. I'm happy to have it at four or five metres. Okay. But um, I just want to... Mm. Is, would winter pruning be the way to go? Or yes. Yeah, summer? yeah. yeah. And you, but you will find a heavy pruning will stimulate lots of growth, so you'll have lots of water shoots that yeah. will come up the following year, so you're going to have a quite different feel to the tree. That's all right. I just I like it for the colour. The autumn um, colour you're after. Yeah. All right. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, I yeah. hope that helps, Adam. Very much. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. All right. Well, we're getting towards the end of the program. Um, remember that the gardening program's on every Sunday from... Uh, 7.30 to 9.15. Uh, so we're hoping that you'll all join us again next week when the program's on. Thank you to everybody this morning. It's been quite a, a, a stressful morning <laughs> in some ways, but we seem to have got there. So uh, thank you for joining us on the program. Craig, thank you for Pleasure. rushing down from yeah. the Dandenongs this morning. It's lucky I don't have a rampant social life, isn't it? Yeah, well, <laughs> uh, at the moment, I don't think any of us have got one. Have we? Yeah. Um, and uh, we will obviously catch up again in due course. Thank yeah. you to everybody on the off-air area for putting their efforts in. 
and uh, we will catch up with you, uh, well, I'll catch up with you hopefully in about a fortnight's time. Don't forget my gardening opening this coming weekend, and don't forget my YouTube channel, The Horticulturalist. So come on board and join me with that one as well. That's right, we wait in anticipation for that one. (laughs) All right, fantastic. (laughs) All right, we'll catch up with you next week. Bye, all. Listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.